you have to consider those students have a different set of expectations than those that are going to be on site on campus. Those that are on site on campus are choosing to be so because they want a home, they want that cultural alignment. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Illuminate Higher Education Podcast. I have with me David Cook, a friend, a partner, and also a great entrepreneur. David Cook is a founder and CEO of Degree Site, which is an ecosystem that helps universities grow their transfer and non-traditional student population by automating the time it takes to evaluate transcripts and create clear pathways to graduation. David, welcome to Illuminate Higher Education Podcast. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Excited to be here. So let's get right into it because you're solving one of the real problems, one of the biggest problems for higher education, which is allowing students to be able to transfer from an institution to another. But let's take a one step back and just talk about the problem of graduation itself. Because if you think about it on the average, less than 35% of students who start after high school uh, or even after gap year with uh, to get a college degree, less than 35% of them graduate from college four or six years from then. And worse yet, about 60% of the drop-off occurs between them starting as a freshman to them starting as a sophomore student. Right. Why is a graduation such a hard thing to do? And also, why does the drop-off occur in the first year? Um, can you talk to us a little bit about some of the biggest blockers preventing students from being successful in higher education? Sure. And I'll do my best, first of all, to acknowledge that I'm not going to be your big data expert. I'm going to pull in some data here from U.S. Department of Education and other studies. But what I first really want to talk about is what my predominant skill set is, which is product and psychology and consumer behavior. And so let's forget all of the things that everyone that's going to be listening to this podcast probably already knows, right? For one, curriculum is hard, right? To the education rigor between a high school and a institution, whether it comes down to homework or testing or just generally life management skills is going to be different. Three is going to be the fears and uncertainties involved with whether or not it's going to be something that you can accomplish. Are you uh, <clears throat> going to get a return on this? Uh, but there's, I think, something much simpler that kind of gets down to outside of the uh, the calculations, the obvious decision elements, and that is just the human nature of it. So why is it hard to graduate? Why is there such a big drop-off? They talk about transfer shock for one, a student who goes from an associate's degree to a four-year, or they do a, a lateral transfer from one university and something goes wrong and they go back to the next university and they then try and finish there. And transfer shock is within about the first month to three months, there is a large percentage of those students who then will drop out, unfortunately. So they were at one institution, they tried making it work. They want to continue their education somewhere else. And then within the first month to three months, a lot of them are lost. Mm -hmm. And one thing I've been very fortunate to get to listen and learn uh, recently, listen from a lot of leaders and learn from them is what they talk about that they're doing right versus wrong at some universities and what they're doing right that does seem to keep that transfer student retained is creating a culture 
that the student can quickly plug into. Creating whether it be relationships with the local sororities and fraternities, actually the local uh, business organizations, and I'm not talking just social, I'm talking about business as well. I'm talking about the, uh, you know, esports is a big thing right now as well. And so that tends, I don't know if it's actually a fraternity or if it's a different organization, but the organizations mm-hmm. on campus, uh, another thing they're doing is they're trying to give additional scholarships to push students to be on campus, not only paying mm-hmm. for your housing, but also paying for all of your meals. Please just be on campus. And in other words, what they're saying is the big reason that many students drop in this specific use case they transferred is because they don't find a home. They got the coursework, but not a home. And if everything's going online today, or so many students are going online today, you have to consider those students have a different set of expectations than those that are going to be on site on campus. Those that are on site on campus are choosing to be so because they want a home. They want that cultural alignment. Coming back to why it's hard, Karen, the one thing I can tell you is I know without a shadow of a doubt, and again, I don't have the data on it though, that would describe it, but the consumer human behavior, a lot of it comes down to relationships. It's fear. It's about dopamine and cortisol. Yeah. Every day when you wake up, do you feel like you can do this or not? And yeah, that's a poor group there for you. That's very interesting. I think you um, actually, there's a couple of things that I, you said that are very powerful because um, I don't know if I, I published it on LinkedIn that Varun, my son, uh, who's 17, a senior in high school, uh, he accepted his admission to Georgia Tech. And we, again, Varun is extremely hardworking. So I wasn't worried about the rigor of Georgia Tech, but everybody knows that this is one of the toughest schools. But Georgia Tech has 97% retention between freshman and sophomore um, conversion, and also 90% overall six-year graduation rate. And one of the reasons that they, uh, the dean was quoting is that they have an incredible support system. And also, just like you described, a great student support system, whether it is uh, student counselors, the fraternities and sororities like you described, and also um, support system just in general on the campus with academic advisors, teaching advisors, you know, I think that is really powerful. And, and you're absolutely correct. The rigor that goes from a high school student uh, where there's a little bit of spoon feeding that goes into by a teacher where they actually go through each lesson and give them the lesson homework and the homework matches to a formative or summative to a college where they literally complete a book in two days and say, Mm -hmm. all right, now go write your essay on it. Um, So you're kind of almost on your own in college. Um, Nobody prepares you for that. You know, do do colleges, are colleges getting better at preparing a freshman student uh, over the years or is it still a, a on their own, preparing the students on their own, you think? Oh, it's both. And it really comes down to, we ask any kind of question of do colleges or are colleges or are universities um, at a macro scale, there is a larger focus on student success that 10, 15 years ago didn't exist. And so I know that, and I'll go through this, I'm sure later on, my personal story was very little student success from an academic advising, a completion standpoint. And pre circa 2000 and I think it was 
12, maybe it was 14, forgetting the exact year, mm -hmm. there was no financial incentive acknowledged in the marketplace for a university to focus on retention. Right. It sounds so silly because, uh, you know, Fortune 500 businesses were all focused at that point in time on churn. And churn and retention really are the opposite sides of the exact same coin. One applied to businesses, one applied to universities. And so this concept started rolling out further and further, and I think gained the most steam. Again, I'm getting my dates probably wrong here, 2012, mm -hmm. 2014. And the reason it did was because federal funding started getting tied towards graduation rates more than anything. And sure. so um, I think that at a macro level, uh, colleges are improving because of that. Sure. And because of the federal funding then got tied in. And then the concept of general churn management and retention came in play. Then dollars started getting appropriated for it. But uh, a quick uh, example is when I was at Baylor back in 2008. Mm -hmm. I remember I would meet with my advising faculty once my freshman year, when I first started, and they handed me a 500-page book and said, all right, figure out what your next steps are, get registered, you're good to go. We have a website. Okay. And then my senior year, the final semester before graduation at fall, mm -hmm. I met with them again and they said, you have to do your check-in to make sure you're going to graduate. I said, great. I'm taking extra credits in my major. Um, I'm very involved. I was at that time leading three different business and social fraternities and associations and um, very, very heavily involved. And uh, I sat down and had my little review, which is the second review I'd had in my entire time there in college. And they said, well, you completely forgot foreign language. And now you need another year and a half of foreign language and you can't start oh, no. now because we don't have any available. And so you're gonna take a fifth year. And I said, wow, do y'all realize insane. that that means I'm gonna lose $32,000 of scholarships alone? And I can't afford that. And yeah. I also have a job that's lined up for May and I would lose that job. And they said, yeah, I'm sorry. We don't have any availability. And that level of handheld success is what I experienced when I was in college. And now I speak with that same institution, Baylor, and now they have, I think, semesterly reviews with the advising faculty and a lot more sure. systems involved. So there has been a very large title shift towards student success. I think that's fantastic. Um, to your point of what's happening at Georgia Tech, I'm sure some of that's newer, probably wasn't there in 2008. But I am hearing that kind of story now, those support systems being built very effectively at some mm -hmm. colleges, whether it be the four-year or the associates, two years. And I'm also hearing some where they're still scratching the surface and trying to make it happen. Yeah, I agree. I think, the, the again, we, we can't solve all the problems, but I do realize that while the government is trying to fix one problem of saying, let's increase enrollments or at least tie some funding to the enrollments. Uh, they're not on the same hand there. The government is probably not doing as good a job trying to support the HBCUs to get the resources they need to provide as much support as a, I don't know, Georgia Tech or Stanford uh, provides to their students. So that's one of the issues, but I do want to talk about, you know, this transfer rigor that you brought up because when we were um, working with Western governors like in 2007, uh, one of the things that we Western governors was trying to do was we want to accept as much transfer as possible because we are an online institution and our goal is to allow for somebody like you when you're in fourth year, third year Baylor to say, you know, hell with this. I don't 
want to stay one more year, I want to take all my courses, lock, stock, and barrel to Western governors or uh, an online school like that and get credited for it 100% and fix the gap by getting a degree from Western governors. They, their, their vision in 2007 was exactly that, to say, I want to get as much, um, I want to allow as many students to get the credit they need so that they can graduate as quickly as possible in Western governors. However, the truth of the matter is 99% of the institutions do the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, you know, four-year colleges, at least until you know 2008, would explicitly say, "Well, if you go to community college and get Math 101, you know your course is not approved yeah. uh, because yeah. you went to a community college." As though Math 101 has something speciality. It's just like mm -hmm. it's just a freshman math course or glorified high school math course. But it wasn't but, by our professor, so yeah, it must be something different. Exactly. So the point is for. The least the institutions can do is to allow students to transfer as many courses as possible. However, they put a lot of blockers from for students. They say, you can only transfer up to 16 credit hours or 30 credit hours. A, why do they do it? And B, how can we get around that? Okay, so there's two pieces to this. One, actually there's three. I'm gonna try and slow myself down, but I'm taking notes here. One is the size of the pie mentality, mm -hmm. all right? Uh, two is going to be, of course, just general hubris. And I don't want to mean to use that in such a negative pejorative, um, but truly, if your math 101 course is the exact same, except someone else's credits, but there is that level of personal affiliation versus recognizing that you are providing a service. It's not necessarily you, it's your service. Mm -hmm. Let's just start with those two and I'll come back to the rest. But the rest is then, of course, operational challenges and validating. Uh, right. and the last piece to that is then current events and changes. And I'll come back to that one. So if anyone is taking notes, have fun uh, taking notes. If not, I'll at least try and be <laughs> concise. So the first challenge here is size of the buy mentality. Uh, one of the charts and graphics I tend to present first, whenever we meet with any university, is the total US higher education population demographic and what that really looks like. And it may sound funny, but everyone thinks right now, okay, we're all fighting over this same population, the same 16 million potential US students. And then we have challenges with that and we still need to grow. And so we're gonna go with international students and bring them in. And so you have these big efforts towards international students. And then you see institutions like WGU or other onlines, other completion centric institutions who are focused instead on adult learners. And you are seeing this trend happening more and more. How do we create certificates and smaller micro degrees, micro credentials, mm -hmm. stackables, other that can be brought into someone who's maybe more like myself, right? Mid thirties, has a family, doesn't have time to go back full-time, maybe doesn't even have time to uh, go to a full-time executive MBA program or something like that. But how do I give them something that they can take back to their employer and advance themselves? And the 16 million in their mind is no longer the entire pie. They're looking mm -hmm. at the learners, they're looking at the entire population. They're looking at international students. They're looking at a larger pie. Historically, the challenge was everyone thinks it's all the same pie. And therefore I have a finite number of students coming in and I have to mm -hmm. maximize my revenue per student to everything else be damned. 
Right. That's and also I have to do it in the first year because the drop off from first off, freshman to sophomore is so high. That's probably why they don't allow for math 101 transfer. Is that is that too cynical to think that like that like that? Uh, no, there's another element to it, actually. And I've had this confirmed by a few universities when they're being very quiet behind doors, whether they admit it directly or indirectly. One of the other concerns is a Math 101 course tends to be less expensive to deliver. So the return per delivered course is higher versus a senior year professor and his time will be more expensive. And so in other words, you're going to give them a much higher value for much less if you actually give them credits for all of the freshman year, sophomore year. Now, granted, that's piece one, size of the pie mentality. Piece two is hubris. Of course, I don't really even need to go into that, right? But again, it's not necessarily just my content. It's sometimes a professor writes their own book and the professor gets an extra bonus each year and they have high sway because they're tenured and they've been there 30 years. And that's a mm-hmm. reasonable human nature, consumer behavior driven element. The third piece, again, operational challenges and validating coursework. It's not just taking math 101 and accepting math 101 here sometimes it's actually the deans at this school and the dean at that school shaking hands and agreeing we'll start working together Mm -hmm. because then you get into political nature of do we validate that your college is of a high enough caliber of curriculum to generally work with at all sure and so coming back to the origins of higher ed in the u.s very segregated uh, isolated institutional institutions spread out across the US. And it used to be to where getting a degree put together and then sent Mm -hmm. over, there wasn't really even the internet to, and obviously, Mm -hmm. to consolidate whether or not your material was the same from one to the next. And the sciences were evolving, right? Gap principles didn't, I believe, even exist when the first universities existed in the US. So how are you gonna say that your accounting course is equal to mine when you may not even be using Gap? Right. So that's that- actually a great point. I did not consider that. I think, you know, we, you're right. Um, we probably, I probably oversimplified by using Math 101 as an example. Yes, you're right. Every institution has their version of Math 101, Chem 101, and Literature 101. But as you get into Math 301s or Math 401s, each institution has their own version of this curriculum. And, you know, US does not really have a base of, core rubrics that would say, you know, this course should have these kind of learning blocks. We can fix that, but I want to talk a little bit about your analogy that you used about articulation agreements. So you're basically saying that in olden days, I don't know when that was, you know, deans would actually say, okay, I'm in UGA math 401 equals math 301 in Georgia Tech, is that how the original articulation agreements were made? So they had to do like one institution by each and build an articulation agreement around that? Yeah, and that actually still happens today, all the time. In fact- So they have to map, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, no, no, yes, it is exactly that. And sometimes it's to a lower level of fidelity than you might even expect, or a lower level of granularity than you might expect. Meaning even just, this week i was going through i believe it's the georgia state articulation common articulation agreement it's signed on by 
a dozen or so partner institutions within Georgia. And if you read through it, it's the PDF drafted, I think, in 2011, ratified in 2012. I'm getting my dates right. You probably know better than I do, Karen, to be honest, because you're in Georgia. But uh, the articulation agreement itself says nothing about course A versus B and whether the code is the same at this institution or at that institution. What it simply says is these are the courses by title and code in a centralized kind of list that we all agree are pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. And you'll see the presidents have to go in and sign off on it. Well, the president doesn't have, I mean, they have independent authority to do so, but that would cause a political uproar in their institution if they went and told the tenured mathematics professor, we will now accept this community college's senior mathematics course or second year math course as your third year mathematics course. Well, again, coming back to hubris and personal nature, mm -hmm. that professor might be offended. Well, right. no, I keep my certifications up year after year. My accounting work is validated by E&Y. This one, they don't update anything. They haven't updated in 10 years. They know nothing about the latest tax principles or what's going to happen <laughs> for a SaaS company. How do you manage a SaaS company's accounting? And so the, the truth of this articulation challenge in the U.S. is exactly what you started to come into a moment ago. The benefit of having independent colleges, whether private and public, that are validated, certified by independent organizations, as it creates room and space for a lot of creativity and change. But the downside to that is because of that flexibility and inherent chaos in it, some of them are not going to be catching up. That's interesting. Um, I do want to talk a little bit uh, about this initiative, like but I do think that this community college example has really reduced quite a bit um, because of the initiatives like Complete College Georgia, Complete College Tennessee, and Complete College Florida, where any student, uh, which is actually a, you know, for lack of a better word, godsend uh, for students, because why should a student go and spend, I don't know, $15,000 at a four-year college to get a freshman course load? Uh, instead of just going and getting it from a community college. And before it was not possible, but now with the complete college initiatives, there's a lot of um, effort to allow students to be able to transfer as much of their coursework from community college to four-year colleges. However, I want to switch to what you do, because the reason why I was excited about talking to you on this podcast is with Degree Site, where even with that, even with saying I can transfer Math 101 or Math 301, it's a complex process, especially if a student is taking mm -hmm. some coursework in California and wants to transfer to an institution in Georgia. In the current model, they have to literally submit their transcript to each institution and uh, you know, and institutions generally don't allow for this level of articulation agreement or transfer type review until they get enrolled. But for them, for a student to, who's in California to see which school he can go to or he or she can go to, they have to submit his, trans, his or her transcript to each institution and wait for them to hear back. But with degree site, you make it easy for your students so that students can uh, figure out which college can, they can go to. Can you talk to us a little bit about your platform, to, especially on how you're helping students succeed in this new model? Absolutely. And I'd be honored to. Uh, before I do, though, you said one thing that I cannot let slip. And that's something I always have to point out whenever anyone mentions it, because it just 
kind of is one of those things that gets under my skin a little bit. Whenever someone mentions a student is losing credits and they're expanding their time to graduation, you said 15,000 additional at the new college that they have to retake. No, the 15,000 is almost negligible to that student's life. When you graduate, you have a job that will pay you a lot more than that 15,000 and you're preventing them from getting that job. The opportunity cost is often 3x the cost of the education itself. And so I really want to hammer that one thing before we even talk about degree site itself. And I bring this up because if we're looking at what degree site does, we're really trying to help institutions get ahead of the curve here, because if they don't start to operationalize these processes and they don't allow themselves to cast a wider net, the relevance of higher education will be diminished in the US to a level that scares me, to be completely frank. So just have to say that one thing. No, I agree. I mean, I think the total cost of ownership of college is not just the tuition, it's accommodation. It is also the loss of time because if a student, like you said about your Baylor experience, if you're adding one and a half year or two years to their academic journey, even if the student makes $60,000 a year, that's $200,000, you know, $120,000 and end two years loss of life. Absolutely, I agree Absolutely. with you. The, the total cost of just extending their um, academic journey, at least irresponsibly or uselessly is pointless. I totally agree. Um, so yeah, how do you fix that? How do you, how does platform like DegreeSight help a student find the right college to enter? So first things first, we're trying to help colleges answer questions quickly. Uh, as an example, we are in discussions with one university right now. They have 30 full-time transcript evaluators. And so students send in unofficial transcripts initially. Then they have to do a secondary review when the official transcripts come in. They're taking that data. They're mapping them one by one against their set of over a million articulation rules. They're then taking the granted courses and they're applying them to specific degrees a student has said I'm interested in. All of that is things that can be done by a machine. The mapping of a uninformed set of data, right, the unofficial set of data to a set of grants and then mapping that into specific programs and saying, how far along are you for this degree? There's an analogy I always give and I'll give it here as well. But if you listen to any other podcasts I've given, I almost always do the same story or give the same story. Uh, let me just kind of back up with it. Imagine that there is this individual who was in a long relationship, two years, three years, they're about to get married. And then right before getting married, they're about to hand over the ring and, and they say, you know, before we move forward, I just want you to know, I really wanna have kids in my life. That's incredibly important to me. That's where I wanna be. And their prospective spouse turns and says, I'm sorry, that's not something I want in my life. It's not gonna work. And they, shake hands, they smile, hug and weep, and they walk away. They decide it's done. That individual then goes back and he says, okay, my body clock's ticking. I've got to make a decision now. I'm going to go out and go to a speed dating conference and try and find a new spouse, maybe one who will have kids with me. And he goes out and he walks in. And there's all these tables and attractive people sitting at all the different tables. And they see the first one sitting across. And of course, she's gorgeous, you know, long flowing hair. If you're a long flowing hair kind of guy, then you can think about it that way batting her eyes and smiling wide ear to ear. And he says, I just want you to know before we even get into anything, I am trying to find someone who wants to have kids 
I just got out of this relationship. It did, it was great, but they didn't want to have kids. So I moved on. And is that something you're interested in in your life? And the first person who he sits down next to says, you know, I'm really not sure if I want to have kids yet. Um, I think that might be something in my life that I'm open to, but I'm not at a point right now where I can make that decision. Um, but I can tell you a lot about me and my job and, and what I do. And sure. you know, of course, we can talk about my friends and my, <laughs> the vacations that I've gotten. P.S. Aren't I hot? Right. <laughs> and you're sitting there thinking, you know, this is this is interesting. And, you know, they are hot. So I don't know. But you get up from the table and you say, OK, speed dating. I got to go to the next one. You kind of keep in the back <laughs> of your mind. You go to the next one. You sit down. Equally attractive person. At the next table sits down. Again, they bat their eyelashes and toss their hair and they're smiling ear to ear. And you tell them the same story. I just got out of a relationship. I want to have kids. Um, how do you feel about this? And they say, well, to be honest, I wasn't sure you were going to ask, but I really want to have kids. I've got siblings right now with nieces and nephews all over the place. And every Thanksgiving we get together and there's 16 kids everywhere. I'm the only one with none. I would love to have a big family. Great man, that's exciting. Would you tell me a little more about you? Oh yeah, I also have this great job and I still work out all the time and I have great friends and PS, aren't I hot? Do you even go back to the first table? Not a chance, not a chance. If all other not. things are equal, why would you go back to the one who cannot address your main concern? Right, I agree. And so if we talk about why is it that degree side exists and what are we trying to do? Transfer students just got out of a relationship or high school students, they got out of a relationship regardless or first time students with credit. Mm -hmm. They're not getting out of a relationship, but they still have a goal in mind. They want to have kids and they're a little informed. Oh no, students who are informed. How do we address them? We answer their questions. And so what Degree Side does is we say, go ahead and tell us what credits you have or what credits you think you're going to have. We don't have to wait for your official transcripts. Go ahead and do a real quick light evaluation. That's going to run through all of our articulations that we know about and everything that we don't know about. Rather than just right. assuming that it's a no, we're going to put that into a workflow queue and let your team answer. Yeah. And we're going to spend the next day, two days reviewing those and get you an answer. And when we review those and get you that answer, it's going to update our engine. We're going to yeah. automatically know that answer next time. That's awesome. That's great. I think there's a couple of interesting ways you explain it. I think you're absolutely correct. You know, colleges are almost like a relationship. There's a lot of emotional investment that goes into it, especially when you join a school after high school. But also, just like you described, like a relationship, you know, when you when you date someone or when you in, when you propose to this, you kind of are related to the family around them as well. In a college, the same thing. You have you build a family around it. You build a network around it. Um, I, I've I've never heard somebody explain it in such personal terms, but it makes hundred percent sense. But let's hear about you. Like a, I know you talked about a little bit about your Baylor experience, but what a what what drove you into building a product like Degree Site? Was there your own life experience or something else that? made you arrive at this cool platform yeah i appreciate that um there's two parts of the story one of which uh i i'll share at a very very high level intentionally not too level of fidelity and, and then the second part is yours truly uh, when i was at baylor the 
when I was a junior there, I was actually an economics and finance major. I had nothing to do with technology, nothing to do with higher education, didn't plan on going this route at all. I was going to go off to Wall Street, do my thing there. And I thought that was exciting. And then the 2008 market was crashing at that time, of course. And at the same time, I was in this MIS class. And this amazing professor who later became a very good mentor and dear friend of mine, Dr. Teresa Edgington, uh, who still lives here in Austin, which is pretty cool too, uh, had this project. If you can fix any one thing with technology, what would you fix? Well, I had an, over, I had an older sibling. I still have an older sibling, of course. But what had happened to him was he got very, very poor advising to the point to where he was a perfect four or five student in high school, National Honor Society, perfect 800 math SAT. I mean, the guy is brilliant. He really is brilliant. And he ended up dropping out of Baylor. And when he did, the dean of the engineering department actually sat down with my parents and said, this was our fault completely. I'm sorry. I would not have done, I would not have given him the schedule I would not have given a senior, forgive me, at Baylor as hard of a schedule as I gave him when he was a sophomore. Mm. And so here I am now a year and a half later, and they asked, what would you fix? And I said, I would fix a student success experience because it was kind of mm. personal to me. And then a year later, I sit down with my own advisors and they said, you two are not going to graduate on time. You're going to be another fifth year statistic because of another advising mistake. And I, at that time, I had already put together this presentation for Baylor, and it was the foundation of what the Greece site has now become, really, was back in 2008. And I showed it to the entrepreneurship department there, the MIS department, the deans of the MIS school, and even the advising and registrar's offices, and they all said, oh, this is really great, man, this would save us so much time. And lo and behold, five years later, I'm talking to my cousin, and he had the same thing happen to him. And all that presentation work I gave had not been grown into, unfortunately. I went off and I started my career at HP and became a lead engineer within about a year and just let it all sure. go. I thought, surely, if I gave someone an answer like that, they would take it and run with it. What I didn't realize is how hard it is to deploy things into higher ed and how to, mm -hmm. hard it is to make change happen in higher ed. So the origin of all of this is missional for me. Uh, my goal is comprehensively recognizing that if the most brilliant mathematician I've ever met in my life can struggle in higher ed and drop out and fail out in higher ed, he ended up, yes, kind of completing his degree, but he was a sixth year to complete mm. and not in engineering. It's not only the fact that it took him longer and it cost him those two years, it's that the future employers that could have had that brilliant mathematician now don't. Mm -hmm. And That's that insane. to me is a struggle. And I could have been that same statistic. I'll be honest. The only reason I graduated, I did graduate on time, was because I went and got Rosetta Stone and did an additional 20 hours a week on top of my existing curriculum, which is already heavily overloaded, to mm -hmm. go test out. And I had to find my own path to make it happen. Yeah. And so my goal here is if the two smart, you know, if again, one of the smartest people I know in my life had that challenge. And I was probably the most plugged in person at Baylor. I was actually nominated who's who that same year at Baylor. And I still was one who's going to be a statistic. How many people who aren't that plugged in or that rigorous are going to be a statistic if we don't just right. give them some help? I absolutely agree. I think that it is a, it's amazing that you took your own 
life experience and try to build and build a solution around it. And kudos to you. And you're right. I mean, higher education is uh, is a slow moving um, ecosystem. There's a lot of inertia. There's a lot of um, lot of indecisiveness around new technologies and new products. But I think last couple of years with COVID, we have it has proven that technology is here to stay. And also it's not only the technology is here to stay, but it's the only thing that can save higher education from this inertia. Um, you know, as we start wrapping up this podcast, can you talk to us a little bit about where you see higher education going? If every, let's hope a, you know, let's paint a blue sky and say, if every institution has degree site installed, what would the student experience look like 10 years from now? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I haven't yet thought about what is the blue sky because what I actually see are the rain clouds. When we look at the statistical trends of higher ed, everyone knows about the enrollment cliff and I'm sure the majority of your listeners will now have seen the additional early dip that's already coming. And you know, you see what's, what Google is doing and other providers are doing boot camps for one. As an example, again, before a degree site, I've been also and product management. And so we hire a lot of engineers. And some of the engineers we hired here in Austin had maybe a year or two of college education and they dropped out and they got a boot camp, and they went to work for one year and they learned React, which is a programming language. And we were paying them $140,000 a year in their early 20s with a year or two of experience. So what I think here is if, if higher education doesn't justify itself across more modalities, more curriculum, more disciplines. Of course, there's gonna be some disciplines where it's required and it will always be required, whether it be uh, medicine, but even medicine's going through a radical shift right now. I have a personal family right. member right now who went and did her um, medical understudy. I forget what it's exactly called. I'm embarrassed to say. Like residency? Not the residency, everything prior to that. She did pre-meds. Yes, did all of her pre-meds starting at 18, rather than doing an undergraduate degree first, she went and she's originally a, a citizen of Mexico. So she did her first four years in Mexico. So by the time she was 21, 22, she was already in residency versus 26. She just huh. cut it out. That's amazing. It's completely cut it out. And that's fully accepted now as a process and a path, but most people don't know about it. Right. What's that going to do to medicine, higher education in the U.S.? And the challenge here is we have to find ways of, again, making this system economically viable for the consumer or else there's one of two paths. I think there's a great article I just recently read. I forget who the author is, so I won't name drop here, but it talks about the function of higher ed in the U.S. and, and the perspective of it. Is it going to be a free market enterprise solution delivered for each individual user and therefore it must justify its existence based alone on tuition and a consumer's decision to buy it or will be funded by the Department of Education and the U.S. government and other entities and the general populace because it must exist. And there is that bifurcation right now. And I will tell you that the trends project that 30% of all colleges in the U.S. are going to go out of business in the near future. Mm -hmm. I saw a report just this week of one going out of business. Yeah. So, well, sometimes it's a, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, I know we're kind of getting on time, but I'll say blue skies with degree side, our goal is to create a frictionless higher education ecosystem. 
So you're not just thinking about the 16 million students in higher ed, but you're thinking about all of those who have credit. And I think the number is about 36 million who have credit and stopped out. That's right. It's over double the size of the pie. And then allow a student who their freshman year wants to be at this community college to get their four year. And then mama gets sick and they have to move back home. They can take all those credits and go back without spending a month trying to figure out how to not lose 43% of their credits. What that will do is it'll make the accessibility of college go through the roof. It'll bring more into this system. It'll allow people to have a lifelong journey of education. Whereas right now, if I want to go back and get my MBA, or if I wanted to get a second major even within my existing credits, so let's just say I want to expand on my undergraduate degree, think about how challenging that is for me to figure that question out. Sure. No, I totally agree. On both fronts, I think the first on the somber sky approach on potentially what might happen to higher education if they continue on the current trajectory of not providing enough support and also continue to do a lot more than chew a lot more they can they can than they can digest the obvious darwinian response to that is there will be some schools that will go out of business probably at a much more rapid scale than before Mm -hmm. but i do agree that if we give more options to lifelong learners to be able to get take advantage of not only their educational credits but also work credits and create a system where they can say you know i've done 15 years as an entrepreneur of a small business so why shouldn't i be qualified to use my accounting discipline or management discipline or hr discipline and get a credit Um, and i think something like degree side can help david it's been an incredible honor to talk to you i've learned a lot as part of this thank you for joining the podcast Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Karen. Uh, And listeners, thank you so much for joining. We'll post the show notes with uh, David's contact information and also some of the cool information about DegreeSite. Thank you for tuning in. Everything is a service. Whether it's finding ways to help students reach their goals within higher education, sharing medical records to patients quickly and securely, informing residential customers of an impending outage, or communicating with remote satellites thousands of miles apart. All of it requires data, integration, and communication. At End2End, we provide services that make all of these possibilities realities. And we make it faster, simpler, secure, and easier. Because we believe everything is a service, and bringing everything together is how we can help you innovate and change the world.